This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, Pastor Bruss, I'm so excited that we're able to get back into the studio today. Uh, It is something of an interest to me that we've just, I don't know, are we like a, a month outside of Mother's Day here? And I went to my normal sources to start listening to sermons, and I was absolutely shocked how most churches on Mother's Day had lady pastors. <clears throat> I was looking at uh, the website of a, a big mega church in the Milwaukee area, and uh, they used to have this um, head pastor, and I was scrolling through the staff, and he's uh, named, you know, former head pastor or something like that, and there's his wife, who is pastor blah, blah, blah. And I was surprised by this. Uh, is she the honorary pastor? Does she get to be pastor by osmosis? I don't think she has any theological training. So are these lady pastors, pastors' wives, really? Is that what is that what we're talking about? Some of them. However, I did hear several others uh, who are staff members at the church. What I just find interesting is how... What, like the secretary? Well, no, like uh, the... Uh, Production yeah. manager. No, um, I think she's in charge of liturgical dance. She, you know, literally. No, I'm just okay. Kidding. Like it would be like, uh, you know, they're they're very vague terms. You know, pastor of ministries here at such and such church. Gotcha. I don't so, know. So maybe they work with children or young families or so, whatever. Small groups. Yeah, you can't tell. I have but no they are idea. Pastors. So are they are they qualified to be pastors? Well, why don't we uh, take a listen and you determine. <laughs> we'll deduce from the evidence. What's up, Life Community Church? Hey, if you're a mama, wave at me. That's right. That's right. I see all your beautiful faces. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. So happy to see you today. Um, I do want to take just a moment and say, Tim had asked me to speak this morning on purpose. That was the topic he gave me, which is like, like, no, it's probably not the hardest one. Next week's the hardest one. But it's like hard because, you know, it's like the number one question everybody wants to know. It's like, why am I here? What am I doing here? What's my purpose? Whatever. So I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is going to be, this is, this is what it is. But I want to thank Tim publicly because, um, you know, not all leaders, not all pastors actually are secure enough to hand the pulpit over to their wives or to women. And so I appreciate that about you. I do, that you see the gift of God, and, um, and it's not gender-specific, the gift of God. And so, you know, you know, the church has told women to sit down for so long, it's like half the army has been taken out. So stop that. Like, we need to get up, like, do what we need to do, right? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story. Um, back when I was in probably middle school, but back then... So there, Pastor Bruss, I mean, that, she really hits the nail on the head, does she not, when she says that most pastors are just, uh, what, they're not secure enough to hand the pulpit over to a woman. And uh, you take out half the army, uh, which which really runs against American notions of equality and, and things like that. So we need to stop it. That's what she said. Stop it. Stop doing that. Yeah. yeah. So it's Pastor Kearns, if a woman came to you and wanted to assume the pulpit, what would you tell? What would your rationale be? Is it is it your lack of security? You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that I'm uh, insecure about. 
you know, climbing large ladders to clean gutters, you know, driving too fast. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that I get a little, little weirded out, maybe even dogs that I don't know real well. But no, in that circumstance, I would say Scripture clearly says that this is not the place for a woman. It absolutely does. Let's read a couple of passages here. First Timothy chapter 2. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's First Timothy 2, verses... 11 and 12, and then we read in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul's talking about the qualifications of an overseer, that uh, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And so it's very clear that the biblical record, uh, this is not a security or insecurity thing, uh, this is a a, uh, purely biblical question. And so... As a result of this lady getting up and doing what clearly she should not be doing as not prescribed by the insecurity of men or whatever else, whatever social ill you want to throw in here, she's clearly doing what God's Word forbids. Right. She's sinning. In doing this. In doing this. And... Everybody who is applauding and accepting her teaching is sinning too. They are aiders and abettors in the sin. Doesn't this vitiate uh, anything that she would say? Totally. It nullifies it. Probably we we got a glimpse too at the shallowness of her theology. Uh, She's asked to speak about purpose and uh, is nonplussed by, by the question. And, of course, we wouldn't expect any evangelical to have uh, just a, a, a crystal clear answer on, on the matter of purpose. And we've seen this in, in some of the other sermons we've listened to. But uh, a Lutheran answers this question very easily, right? My purpose is to live as a baptized child of God here on this earth according to the Lord's Ten Commandments in my station in life. It, to me, this is the fascinating thing about the Ten Commandments. They're so... Uh, I don't want to say malleable, but they, they are so applicable to every station in life. Everybody, uh, whether they're a two-year-old child or a 95-year-old grandpa, has a role to play and a way to live according to the Ten Commandments. A child, for example, lives in obedience toward his parents, but parents, uh, conversely, Uh, have to exercise their authority in a God-pleasing manner so as not to exasperate the child. This is where uh, the small catechism, maybe even uh, the Lutheran hymnal, would say, seeing yourselves in light of the Ten Commandments, reading the Ten Commandments, and discovering where you are. Consider your station in life according to the Ten Commandments. That's it. Are you a a, a male servant or a maid servant? Are you a son, Mm -hmm. daughter? Right. Are you a child? Are you? Have you been lazy? Right. Have you squandered your master's goods? Right. Mm -hmm. Let's go full circle then back to the purpose of the preacher. Number one, he's supposed to be a male. Right. So let's talk about this in light of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Okay. What commandment has been broken by the woman? Uh, I mean, you can think of this in terms of commandments, not just these specific things that we've decided from uh, from the letter to Timothy. 
um, what commandment has been broken? The first, the first, the very first commandment. Well, always the first commandment is going to be broken. Right. Here, you should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. This is what he has said about you and your station in life, and you have not, obviously, she doesn't fear him at all. No. She, this is brazenly stepping forward against God's word. Right. She can't love him because she's not, if you love Obeying him. him. Exactly, right? And she's not trusting that his word, even though it takes out half the army, is, is actually for the best of the church and the world. Well, I was going to say she's breaking the third commandment for sure. For sure. Because, you know, this is where in the explanation of remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, how do we do this? So that we do not despise preaching, preaching in his word. And his word, but hold it sacred, which she's not doing. Gladly hearing it, she's not doing that and learning it. And she's not doing that. I mean, she's She's poo-pooing all of that and saying uh, women are a, a force in the church that for too long have been put down. People listening to this need to know that, that neither of us are saying that the Lord hasn't given wonderful gifts to many women who are extremely capable and do have a very positive role to play in the church in influence and advice and other things like this. I mean... No one's saying that they're unqualified for uh, kind of like it, it, the way that Aristotle thinks about it, right? Which is that women are just dummies. Uh, they're they're not as, uh, and of course in Aristotle's world, women weren't well-educated at all. They weren't given the same gifts by society that men, did, men had. Today, women are, right? We're not saying that they're disqualified because they're dumb. We're saying that for whatever reason, this is what the scriptural record says, and, and this is where we have to stand. And so could we, I realize this is stepping uh, into dangerous territory, but could we speculate on why that is as we look to Adam and Eve, as we look to Christ and his church, uh, as we look to the fact that man has always been seen as the priest a uh, woman has always been seen as the parishioner, the congregation, as it were. Can we speculate further on these things? I think what we can see. God set it up like this? We can see patterns for sure. You know, there's a wonderful uh, little booklet by Bill Weinrich called, um, I, I think it's I Do Not Allow a Woman to, to Teach, A Lex in Search of a Ratio, A Law in Search of a Reason, right? I think you can definitely see the pattern. The problem is when you try to come up with a ratio, um, that's where you can get into speculative trouble. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't want to go there. But it is so interesting to me how these male pastors, as the overseer, they're to blame just as much as the one who is, quote-unquote, committing the crime. Right. They've invited the crime, haven't right. they? I'm going to leave the front of the store unlocked tonight. Right. Come on in and do whatever you want. <laughs> right. So what does this say about their theological training? 
apparently this is legit in the going this way is legit in the evangelical world it's it's legit in main mainline denominations yeah, in, it, in north it, america and it was right? it was legit in the mainline denominations before it became legit in the american evangelical yeah world. i wonder how much that you know temporally how how much did the mainline decision precede the evangelical world you know like mary Baker Eddy is that who is that sure all right that that would have been is that still 19th century I just don't yes know. okay so she was there were already women preachers uh, in those days and I just read something fascinating when um, and it's much to the shame of German Lutherans I read this biography of um, Martin Niemöller uh, the guy you know and then they came for me that that guy he was a Lutheran pastor um, and uh, as these pastors were getting rounded up, and they were getting rounded up and putting in, getting put in concentration camps, their wives were taking over the conduct of the services because there were no pastors left, which is just extremely odd to me. Why, why they would have gone in that direction and not appointed elders or something like that to, to carry out these pastoral duties. So already then, in World War II... The emergency situation uh, precipitated this virtual ordination of women uh, in the state church of, uh, uh, or the territorial churches of Germany. That reminds me of the story of Deborah in the Judges, how she is called up to be a warrior. And when you read that story, that's not to be seen as a good thing. I mean, this is judgment of God that that a woman is having to go into this vocation. This is not something that's to be celebrated and repeated. Things are so bad that God has to call forth a woman to take care of killing the the pagan overlord. Right. It's like the curse in Isaiah that a child shall rule over them. And that's not a good thing. So we are talking about the... Uh, theological training of these pastors. We already know that the women pastors have no theological training. Apparently not, right? right? The male pastors should, but probably don't. Here's the irony of it. They've gone to a seminary that purportedly takes, this is the pattern that we're seeing among the evangelicals. They say, this is God's word. This is his inspired and errant word, his verbally inspired and errant word. And then they just brush over what it says about baptism, what it says about the forgiveness of sins in the sacrament, what it says about women in the assembly of the Christians. This is no surprise. It always behooves me that American evangelicals can say on one side, sola scriptura, and then on the other side, do exactly the opposite of what the scripture says. And there was no appeal in her, in what she said. I mean, there was a slight appeal to some vaguely theological rationale, right? Like, God can work through us, too. Nobody's arguing that. Yeah, exactly. But every other appeal was only to sort of American social standards of what is acceptable in, in life. Well, going to the lack of theological training for the lady pastors, give a listen to this lady pastor. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took his own, his, took her to his own home. Okay, just a side note there. Pastor Bright and I had a conversation this week about the word woman because that really bugged me. <laughs> um, there's two times that you see in Scripture in the Gospels when I was reading that um, God directly speaks to his mother. And in both cases, they, it says woman. Um, we all know that translation doesn't always come across in our culture and our society the way it did back then. But basically, that word translated back in the original Greek okay, um, would have been... Greek or Hebrew or whatever it was. It was one of those that (laughs) um, would have been basically a word of honor, like in the South, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am kind of thing. So, you know, Greek, Hebrew, you know, you know, it's one of those, maybe. That is astonishing. I was just in my office the other day with two lay people from our congregation And she was telling me all sorts of interesting things, but went, you know, on to talk about the Greek New Testament. This is somebody who hasn't learned a stitch of Greek, but actually was very knowledgeable in how to talk about the New Testament as a Greek text. It's astonishing that they have somebody up on the, I guess it's a stage, isn't it? Yeah, platform. Yep, preaching who is unaware about of the or almost basic fact of the New Testament. I wonder if she knows how many books are in it. You know, everybody has a bad day. <laughs> right. <laughs> but our children learn this in catechesis. These are 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. They know that the New Testament is Greek, the Old Testament is Hebrew, with portions of it in Aramaic. That is astonishing. So again, the theological training of the lady pastor is totally suspect but we also have to ask the question of the pastor i mean she said she had a conversation with her pastor the pastor of the church and she continues to have it right there on the stage because obviously yeah, she's saying is, it, is that right is it greek yeah Hebrew? greek Hebrew, what whatever it? whatever <laughs> pig pig latin what, what is this pig pay atle in your pentecostal circles your amy simpleton mcpherson uh, <laughs> Amy Simpleton McPherson. <laughs> yeah. Who's that? Amy Simpleton McPherson. <laughs> okay. This is so funny. I did not... What a, what a horrible name to go through life with. <laughs> Obviously, you've never uh, run across anything about this woman. No, I mean, never. craziness. Orchestrated her own kidnapping. Hmm. Anyway, this is out in California. Um, uh, Foursquare, if I'm not mistaken, four, this Foursquare denomination. She I've was heard the, of that. She was the, the, the jewel in that denomination. Hmm. So the point is, is that you had women pastors in Pentecostal circles. Then I think through the liberalism of the denominations, the, uh, the mainstream, uh, through their seminaries, this is where you start to see this same imbibing of this uh, women uh, women in pulpits there now it's made its way in my opinion through pentecostal circles through mainline denominations and now it's starting to be a smattering 
across the American evangelical, typically with uh, the either A, lady on staff, or B, wife of the pastor. I don't know how they come to that conclusion. I, the, the mainline denominations, of course, appeal to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, oh, where there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. Right. The I, barrier has been broken. Right. Uh, and basically, they say, okay, uh, there there must be a specific circumstance that Paul is thinking about in in uh, you know in Timothy's case that he's just trying to shut down something uh, because this is what he says here in in Galatians. So what if the argument came back to you and said, well, I mean, we don't do head coverings in church. Oh my goodness, let's talk about head coverings. Isn't, so, isn't that a isn't that the standard uh, argumentation? It totally is, and I mean, it really is the NIV that leads you into a problem. So in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, at the end of his uh, talk about uh, head coverings in church, uh, he says, uh, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Interestingly, the ESV takes it correctly. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And so you need to be much more careful in reading 1 Corinthians 11. I think what Paul is, there's, there's been this argument in, in Corinth, obviously, and everything really hinges on that last verse, and the NIV just takes it completely incorrectly. We have no other practice. In other words, um, the only practice that's uh, that's possible in the church is for women to have their heads covered. Well, that's very different from saying we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. It's so saying you, the very opposite, and the Greek text says uh, says such. We have no such practice. Meaning that a church could have that practice. Correct. Or a church could not have that practice. Correct. And it's adiaphora. It's adiaphora. That's very, yes, thank you. You cut through all of the all of that talk. But but this has to do with accuracy of language. I really think it does. And I think the NIV translators did the church a great disservice because uh, what it what it forced what it forced upon the church as the NIV gained popularity was the need for Greekless pastors uh, to say to, to to sort of explain why women were okay not wearing uh, a head covering, uh, and why it was okay to break what the scriptures mandate, according to the NIV. Well, as soon as you open that can of worms, everything else is up for grabs, and we're seeing this, are we not, with uh, the way that, that these women are pastors, uh, c- quite contrary to what Paul instructs uh, Timothy and what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14 and so on and so forth. And, and uh, the pattern that you, that you pointed out throughout all the scriptures, including Deborah. So if you go back to your Galatians, when you say that the mainline denominations teach the Galatians 3, that there is no difference, uh, the barrier, the wall has been broken down between Greek and uh, Jew and male and female, what is that interpretation in Galatians 3? What He's clearly not talking about women are now allowed to preach. I mean, in Galatians, right, it, the whole question that Paul's coming after is who may be saved? 
And the argument by the opponents of Paul in Galatians is, look, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. This goes back to a a rabbinical argument uh, that had been going on in the synagogues for centuries among the diaspora Jews. You had three classes of people who sort of glommed on to synagogues. One were the Udayoi, the Jews, okay? These were like full-blooded Jews, and the males were circumcised at eight days of age. Then you had the proselytai, the proselytes. And the proselytes were these special people, uh, really brave males, <laughs> who <laughs> were reached by the proclamation of the Jewish people uh, in such a way that they actually adopted Judaism wholesale, and the males got circumcised. Can you imagine at age 40, without any anesthesia, uh, getting circumcised? I mean, this is just unbelievable. And the third category are the Theosebomenoi. Uh, and the Theosebomenoi are these Gentiles who like the Jewish proclamation. They come to synagogue all the time. They're Jewish in every way except for they don't have the bravery. They don't cut themselves. They cup themselves. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> so, so this is the, precisely the issue that arises in the Galatian church. Remember that every time Paul goes to a new place, he stops in the synagogue first. So we, what we have, and, he, and then gets beat up, or or and gets accepted, and then yeah. starts a church. Oftentimes, the synagogue itself comes over. Right, it becomes a Christianized synagogue. In, in Paul's mind, there's seamless continuity between the Old Covenant and the fullness of the revelation in Jesus Christ, right? Um, and so in Galatia, you've got the same exact debate going on. You, you probably have these proselytes who are, who are looking down their nose at the Theosabomenoi. And now Paul comes along and says, look, in Christ Jesus, you don't need to be circumcised. And the proselytes are going... You know, I could have had a V8. Uh, why did I have to get circumcised? And they want to force this upon the upon the Theosabomenoi. Uh, Paul's saying, look, there is no there are no qualifications. There are no sort of previous qualifications to being a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. Here we go, right? That is a, a full Jew or a total Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It Think of all the social divisions. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Two examples I think could come into our listeners' mind is that you think about what took place on Pentecost, where the apostles are now preaching in languages and the Bible lists them all out. Clearly there were all three of these different categories that you've referenced here in that audience. Yes. For sure proselytes, we know that so it says Jews and proselytes. It uh, does. Yeah, it does, right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm um, Arabs, Cretans, those from Mesopotamia, Pamphylia. Uh, so they're so they're all there. They believe. They're baptized. They're one in Christ. This has nothing to do with oh, you women over here. You now can be apostles. You now can preach. Right. Right? It has nothing to do with that. Yeah. And so the, uh, the other thought that I was thinking about is then in Acts, it's Acts 15 where you have the church council. And the church council makes it very clear that those of the third category uh, that you mentioned, they don't, they don't have to be circumcised in order to be uh, a child of God, adopted. Uh, right. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to. That's really the issue. That, 
there's neither Jew nor Greek, right? You don't have to become a Jew. But Paul's argument in Galatians is, no, you are children of the faith of Abraham through faith. In, you are children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. So it really is a switching uh, of categories when you go from a salvific argument to then a, what, a, a pastoral argument? Good. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, this is this is the order of the gospel, on the one hand, versus the order of the law, on the other hand. And, and so Paul is making a gospel pronouncement here. He's saying, this is how you, as an individual, relate to God. It's regardless of your gender, your ethnicity, or your station in life. Uh, if you're baptized into Christ, you are a child of Abraham. However, that does not erase the social distinctions that are of necessity uh, the Lord has built into the creation. You're still a woman, right? I mean, this is, so, this is as preposterous. I mean, what, what this woman ought to do if you're going to appeal to Galatians 3 about this is say, look, I'm going to start become, I'm going to start being the begetter of children and not the bearer of children. Slaves should overthrow their masters. I mean, it, it, it's it, preposterous, right? So, I heard another clip. Now, this time, this is from a man. This is from a a, a pastor, a man pastor, a man pastor, and uh, he's studying through the Book of Acts, and he really wants to see what takes place in Acts take place now mm, the good old days the good old days gotcha. so just a small clip from him i wanted to uh see what you thought and i've wondered about this the book of acts i just want to encourage you there's so many things in acts that we're like we're not gonna be able to touch on everything in four weeks in acts but i just want to encourage you something when you read acts and you read about being baptized in the holy spirit we're gonna read about this in just a second here when you read about all these things I would encourage you to read Acts the way we should read the whole Bible in saying, why not today? Why not for me? Because there are so many people in the church world explaining away why this that happened in the New Testament was for then, but not for now. This outpouring was for then, it's not for now. People are like, so the fivefold ministry of apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Um, we believe in the fourfold, but not the apostles. That died with the apostles in the Scripture. Where does it say that? What if we read the Scriptures and we looked at it and went, wow. What if the same miracles and greater that Jesus did, he really meant it when he said we could do those in greater? What if I could be filled with the Holy Spirit? What if I could be baptized with the Holy Spirit? What if I'd speak in other tongues? What if God would call me? from what I'm doing, to do something else for him? What if God would use me right where I'm at in my sphere of influence that he has me right now to spread the viral message that Jesus still saves, that he still redeems, that he still heals, that Holy Spirit is something not to be feared but to be welcomed? So I heard this clip, and clearly he is... Wanting to see, as I said earlier, uh, Acts, you know what, chapter 29, 
You know, I mean, he he wants to see it happening today. Yeah, it's chapter 29. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. He, he wants his church to be, uh, you know, the continuation of of Acts. He references there at the beginning, is it, uh, is it from Ephesians where he gave some uh, the gifts of apostles? Right, what Ephesians is, chapter 4, mm-hmm. right? He gave some to be prophets and apostles, some to be pastors, teachers. Um, and evangelists. Well, and evangelists, right. So this is what he's talking about. He's calling this this fivefold ministry and that some people only believe in the fourfold ministry in that the apostles are no longer with us. And we've talked about this before in regard to a man building upon the foundation, which is the apostles' teaching. Why do people have such a hard time believing that there are no more prophets anymore and there are no more apostles? What his line of thinking would suggest is that there is more of the canon to be written. There's more of the teaching of the apostles to, to be coming here. And so the Bible is... It's all, fluid. Fluid, expandable. Number two, you know, I, I think a Psalm 77. I was looking that up while uh, I was listening to this clip here. And it's this lament over uh, why are things just not going well right now? You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? This is basically what the guy is saying, isn't he, right? Hearing this guy as much as I have, his dad was a pastor. He grew up in a church, the the Pentecostal church uh, in Wilmington. Uh, They were the cat's meow back in the day. Dad retires. He takes over as the pastorate. The church starts to shrink mm-hmm. under his leadership. He's been heavily engaged in church really his whole life. And it's like, what, when are we going to get it? When are we going to uh, see it? When are we going to experience it? Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. It really comes across to me like, man, I'm running out of of real estate here mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I, i'm not getting any younger at this game i'm getting older and it seems like we're on this downward uh projection here and uh man i i just want to see it before i die i'm sure that's what he's saying you know, listen to what the psalmist does in 77 though he goes on and he says Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I'll ponder your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And so he goes on and talks about the Exodus, right? So he's looking for, just like everybody does, what's the evidence of God in my life? I'm not finding it. In fact, I'm finding what looks like the opposite of it. But his faith does not rest ultimately in what the Lord is or isn't doing today, what he thinks the Lord is or isn't doing today. He says, I will remember uh, the deeds of old. And this is exactly where this guy ought to be going, right? Like not give, give me more, give me more, give me more, but wow, God, you've already redeemed me. Well, and on top of that, with the sacramentarians there's really nothing to cling to outside of what god has done in the past right so in other words they have no sacraments which connect them to the cross of jesus right they've got to sort of 
what work it up in their hearts or something right and yeah. this is why they would never say you know how do you know that i'm saved they would never point to their baptism ever like you would say how do you know that you've been with the lord today you could answer well i uh, I went to church. I, I, I heard his word. I, 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 I made my prayers. Uh, you know, the law was preached into my, my ears. The, the gospel was, um, was proclaimed. Uh, the pastor put into my mouth the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus. I mean, all these are very tangible, actual things that the evangelical can't point to. He's got nothing. Right. So he's always wondering if it's on the other side of the hill. And if I could just make it up to the side of the hill, then maybe then it's on I'll the other side. It. Yeah. 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 What a lack of comfort and oh, what yeah. a lack of certainty. No um, doubt. And, and how it turns you in on yourself. Okay. Thank you. So how it turns you in on yourself. So going back to the lady pastors, I think that the lady pastors, not that the male pastors are, uh, you know, that they don't do this too, but the lady pastors, they are going to turn you in on yourself. Just give a listen to this. I want to hit on worship. I want to talk about, did you, when you worship, when you stand here, now there are so many ways that you can worship. You can hold your hands up. You can be on your knees. You can just be living life and walking around and worshiping. I mean, worship is our expression to the Lord that he is good. It's a choice that we make to assign worth to the greatness of God, proclaiming his goodness, his greatness through our words and actions. It is a strategic offensive tactic against the enemy every time. Worship can look like so many things though. Our heart postured toward God is our worship. So when you're in here before, you know, at the pre-service, or it's not pre-service, what is it? Before the speaker comes up, whatever. During worship, when you're in here during worship. That was really hard, right? That was really tough to say. When you're in here during, I mean, can you feel though? Can you feel the presence? You want to push in. You want to move forward. You want to do something. There's like a tugging at your heart that says, oh, I, I don't know. I don't, this, I, this, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. There's no right or wrong. But there's a posturing that makes you feel a certain way. It says, God, I, I see you. I know you see me, and I'm recognizing all of that right now. So as we look at worship, there is this fascinating story to me. I, I, I really do like this story. And Gabby kind of referenced it when she was speaking during This Is How I Fight My Battles. And it's in 2 Chronicles 20. Um, it's the... It's, Jehoshaphat, but the Moabites and the Ammonites are coming to literally, and Jehoshaphat knows it. They're coming to take over his territory. They are coming to do some damage, and he knows they're coming. So I'm kind of jumping around in this uh, Second Chronicles 20, but just stay with me. Again, it's a little bit long. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem and said a beautiful word ending with, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jehoshaphat. I don't know how to say that. But anyway, he was a Levite. So skipping ahead, he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. See, there's that but God's again, right? You will have to fight. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and what? See 
the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, right here, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out to the head of the army. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever, they sang. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Amnon and Moab. And it goes on to say that they began to annihilate one another. The sound of, the sound of worship, the sound of pressing back the enemy, the sound of those men marching out in triumph in worship literally confused the darkness. They didn't even know who they were killing anymore. They started killing each other. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets. The fear of the Lord came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. He didn't have to do anything but sing. I mean, don't you know, like, this is a paraphrase of what God must have said to Jehoshaphat, but look, don't, don't worry. I got this. I got this. You, you go ahead and actually send out your musicians because you're actually not going to need your valiant super soldiers for this one, Jehoshaphat. Weapons aren't going to win this battle. Worship will. Can you hear the sound as Judah sang? The sound of the kingdom going out and literally confusing the enemy so desperately that they killed each other, wiped each other clean. And peace was on every side. So often, we feel that pressure coming against us. It can almost paralyze us, almost like a spiritual claustrophobia, like, it's suffocating me. I've lost my lifeline. So often, we let worry, we let fear, we let our anxiety, we let our depression, we let our stress, we let whatever the thing is that stands against you, we let it come against us hard and fast. But to fight our battles, we must turn our worry into worship. We have to say, God, I'm going to sing even when I don't know what to sing. I'm going to praise, I'm going to worship, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to do it all until I don't have another breath in me. Because what I know is that that's what pushes back the enemy. That is how I fight my battles. We can worship our way into victory. God is never leaving you alone. 
He's never abandoning you to self-reliance, self-defense. That's not who he is. He always stands with you. But it is our choice to move in the places that he expects us to move. I want to share another story. Well, there you go. So this is classic hermeneutic mistake made here by the lady pastor of taking a descriptive text and making it prescriptive. And not understanding the reason for which the Lord intervenes on Jehoshaphat's behalf. There's a promise here to David that one of his sons will always be on the throne of Judah. And what the Lord does, uh, and he just all you got to do is read First and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. He removes the the faithless and he upholds the faithful. And Jehoshaphat was uh, one who had was one of the good guys. Uh, his only problem was that he didn't remove the worship sites and the high places. I don't understand why said lady pastor won't make the connection in that as a result of Judah singing like this entire enemy army is wiped out and killed so when I then turn my problems or my worry into worship like God's gonna kill people that are that are <laughs> bothering me <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, nobody is going to suggest that, you know, what is this? This is the absurdity, really, of the, of the argument here, how this lady pastor is turning everybody in on themselves to make them question the authenticity or the passion of their own worship. Are you worshiping enough? The thought is, clearly, you're not worshiping enough. If you've got worries and anxieties. And stresses and depressions. Right. Then you need to turn that into worship. You're trying to cure people of their worry, which is noble, but it clearly has nothing to do with the prescription that she's giving. She's actually adding, uh, I would say, another level of anxiety uh, to the whole situation, isn't she? Obviously, I'm anxious because my life isn't going well, and now I have to be anxious because my worship isn't what it ought to be. No, music clearly in the scriptures has a wonderful power. We see David use it to mollify Saul, as an example, when he's beset by uh, evil evil spirits, right? And Paul even uh, exhorts us in uh, Colossians, is it Colossians three sixteen, to speak uh, to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But look at the content there, right? The content is songs, hymns, and spiritual songs are they're all scripture related, exactly, right? And we can actually see uh, in the scriptures many places where there are. Early Christian songs. Uh, a great example of this is uh, Philippians chapter 2. It talks about, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form of God, considered being equal with God not something to be snatched, uh, but uh, emptied himself and taking on the form of a slave, 
so on and so forth. Yeah. That's uh, an early Christian hymn. And some to some Bible translations will actually, if you go and you look at it, they will either be indented to, to show you that this is, uh, you know, that this is hymnody here. And then, unfortunately, some, some Bibles don't. It just looks like the same, same prose as, as the rest of the letter. Right. And, and, but the point is that these are in the Scriptures. Uh, you find them in the Timothean um, uh, correspondence. You find it in Philippians. Uh, you find them in all sorts of different places, plus the use of the Psalms, right? I mean, they're, the Christians are using the Psalms all the time. Well, it is the hymn book of uh, Israel. Exactly, exactly. So what I'm getting at is this. It's not the effect of that music is not the stirring up of the the heart. Or, or in other words, its effect isn't brought about by the stirring up of the heart. It is the proclamation of salvation in Jesus Christ that is the thing. That's the answer. So again, we have seen yet another lady pastor who clearly theologically suspect at best when she ascends onto the platform and preaches. But the bottom line is, doesn't matter how theologically astute she might be, she is clearly violating Scripture and God's good order when she preaches. She is. Imagine if she had just said, this is a good hymn to sing. This is Second Timothy chapter 2. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. What a wonderful proclamation of the gospel and comforting. Talk about an anxiety queller. I imagine when the reader uh, of these letters were to read Paul's letters in the church, that the congregation, because they know the hymn in which he's quoting, would begin singing it, you know, as the reader uh, reads it. Right. Or humming it or whatever. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Of them going, oh, you know, maybe it woke them up out of their stupor for just a few months. Oh, I know that. I know that hymn. Right. And, and oh, so this is what we sing. Aha, I see. Now, this is connected to what Paul's saying. Oh, I get it. And the beautiful thing is, is that that hymn is included in the all scripture is God breathed. Right. Right. You know? Yeah, that's really wonderful. Yeah. And, and you know, this brings us into a whole other line of dialogue with one another about how poor the music has become. In the evangelical church, mm-hmm. in contemporary mm-hmm. worship. Yeah, the mm-hmm. co mm-hmm. Right. I mean, think about the content of that one or two verses I just read. It's just tremendous. Yeah, compared to Jesus is my boyfriend music. Right. Let's switch gears for just a few moments that we have left. I have come across a Roman Catholic commentator. Back in October, he did a segment on his show uh, dealing with Martin Luther. And uh, I thought what he had to say was um, provocative and interesting and uh, wanted you to hear it. Now we're going to move into our featured segment and we're going to talk about Martin Luther and what I really think about Martin Luther. So stay tuned. Okay, you know who Martin Luther is. Everybody knows who Martin Luther is. You learn about him in public school textbooks. He's usually celebrated as someone who brought about uh, freedom of conscience and equality and brought us out of those 
darn old dark ages. All right, but I want you to go come with me in a thought experiment. We're going to imagine that Martin Luther didn't lead a Protestant Reformation or revolution, but that he became a great saint. And what would have taken for that to happen? We all know that the state of Europe and the church were less than ideal at the beginning of the 1500s. We needed reform. We needed great saints. And what if, what if Martin Luther endured in orthodoxy, in the Catholic faith, and he used all of his rhetorical skills to bring people together to unite Europe, to unite the body of Christ, what would have happened? What if he had been the next Augustine or the next St. Francis or the next Thomas Aquinas? Well, we know that that didn't happen. What happened is, is he wrote the 95 Theses, which he posted publicly. They began to be distributed. And then he was challenged by the church to defend his doctrines, which were uh, critical of certain elements, primarily the jurisdiction of the Pope, the role of indulgences, and authority. And when he was challenged, he began to take on a more and more defiant... All right, I'm going to stop him right here for just a moment because this kind of bugs me a little bit. You know, when you begin to read early Luther, especially when he is being challenged, he is so conciliatory. Absolutely conciliatory and, and doing everything in his power. I mean, as much as the he was summoned by the papal legate, he wanted to meet with the papal legate because he was convinced that Rome would say, yeah, you're right, this abuse has got to stop, and that they would come to his defense. And then, of course, when they didn't, and then they wanted him to recant, and then they said, we're going to kill you because you won't recant. There's a bounty on your head. I don't know. For this guy to just say, you know, he is pointing out the abuses— uh, what would happen if he really tried to unify the church? He's not even pointing out the the very obvious reality that the Pope that 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 the issue Luther wanted he called for a council already in 1520. Let's get together on this. He wanted to keep the church in unity, and the Pope's response was, "There's a price on your head." I, th- this is very frustrating. Plus, I mean, he does get very polemical. There's no question about it. Oh, no doubt. But this is, at what point does he get polemical? Exactly. It's after after the price tag is on his head, number one. Number two, he is requiting like for like. Uh, He has been attacked, brutally attacked, uh, by the defenders of the Roman hierarchy. Which is just frustrating. Which, uh, you know, it reminds me, what do you do when you're dealing with a bully? Your answer is punch him in the nose, right? Punch yeah. him in the nose. Yeah, yeah. This is what Luther was dealing with. He was dealing with bullies. Absolute bullies. Uh, I mean, to the point that they threaten his life. Well, they kicked him out of the church, threaten his life, send posses out to, you know, capture him. Of course he's going to punch back. Right. His argument's going to be he did not respond in a saintly manner. 
Luther makes a very interesting distinction. Uh, He makes a distinction between doctrine and life. In life, your sins against me, I must live toward you under love and forgive you 70 times 7. But in doctrine, it's a golden ring. And if you take a hacksaw to it and start messing with it, you must, you must defend it to the point of even losing your own life. This is the teaching of Paul in, again, the letter to the Galatians. And so Luther is very polemical about teaching. He never attacks life. Tone. And if you ever read any of Martin Luther's work, you pick up on that immediately. It's very polemical, very hostile, and honestly, at times, offensive to the ears. The language he uses, the abuse that he throws on his opponents is pretty offensive. I mean, he was definitely not a politically correct man. And that comes out very clearly in his writings. Luther writes during a period of time in in German literature known as uh, Grobianismus, uh, grotesqueness. And it's marked by this kind of uh, bombast that uh, that he exhibits. His opponents exhibited the same thing. So this is kind of like taking Victorian... Uh, proprietary uh, principles, right, and superimposing them on an era that simply can't deal with it. I mean, it's just like not a category in their thinking. Yeah, political correctness was not on their radar. No. And that's okay. See, that's what he's making it out to be, that that's somehow or another a a, a bad thing. An unsaintly Mm -hmm. sin. Mm -hmm. So what about Isaiah talking about righteousness as menstrual rags? That's pretty disgusting. He can't be a saint then. There are grotesque things throughout the throughout the scriptures, and um, and it's not that we are defending Luther. We really are just trying to correct the record of what this guy is saying. Right now, there have been other saints in the history of the church who have been persecuted by the church. Saint Teresa of Avila is a doctor of the church, a wonderful woman saint. And she, at times, was persecuted, John of the Cross as well. In our own time, in the past century, St. Pio, Padre Pio, was persecuted by the church. The church forbid him to say Mass publicly. Can you imagine that? This great saint with the stigmata could not say Mass publicly. He could not hear confessions. The church buttoned him down so that he could not fulfill, to the full extent, his priestly ministry. But the difference between St. Pio and, or Padre Pio and Father Luther, is that Padre Pio, in quietness and in prayer and in humility, submitted to the unjust persecution of his own Catholic Church against him. He offered that suffering for the salvation of souls and the betterment of the Church. And the Church was blessed for it. And he was blessed. He became a great saint. In the case of Martin Luther, he pushed back and resented. And we know that this is our own human nature. When we are mocked, when we are persecuted, when we are questioned, we immediately want to bristle up and push back and fight. That's our human nature. We can all understand that. But that is not the attitude that Christ calls us to on the Sermon on the Mount and throughout all four Gospels. Instead, we see the teaching of humility. Even Christ, at times, submits himself 
to the ungodly princes of Israel, the high priests. Christ even submitted himself to Pontius Pilate's court and the pagan Gentiles, the Romans, the Romans. And I write about the importance of this in the book, The Eternal City. If you've read that book of mine, The Eternal City, you see how important that is. I don't know who Padre Pio is, but it does seem to be a little bit of a different scenario, don't you think? Yeah, I don't think Padre Pio had an excommunication and a death sentence to his credit. Uh, Just says they wanted to button him up. They didn't like his stigmata is what is basically. uh, So, but the way that he handled it was supposed to be the way that Luther handled it. What was uh, Martin Luther doing all of those years when he was in the cloister? What was Martin Luther doing all of those years when he was at Wittenberg as a professor? He was doing what he was supposed to do with this saint-like attitude and characteristic. You know, he even said, if I would have stayed there in the monastery doing what I was doing, I would have, I would have killed myself based upon all of the, um, the trappings the exercises, yeah, yeah. that he was involved in. True. And, and, and it's not like I want to say that he was medically debilitated as a result of those spiritual exercises that he was engaged in. I mean, that, that plagued him, so to speak. The rest uh, of his life. Yeah. Right. Yeah, to the point where he had uh, constipation and uh, fistulas uh, down there. I mean, what a horrible thing. Um, so he was a good citizen of the Roman Church. He really was, and he thought he was being a good citizen of the Roman Church, and he wanted the Roman Church to come along. Now, what this is doing, what, what this guy is doing basically is he's playing off, uh, submit to the Pope at all costs, right? I mean, that's the highest form of obedience, I guess. Is that what he's saying? Follow the example of Jesus. Do like Jesus did. Well, look, Jesus suffered for my sins. He he actually uh, chose to be condemned by Pilate uh, and crucified under Pilate to save me from my sins. He doesn't ask me to go get crucified by Pilate or anybody else. A. B. Did not Paul and Peter get into get into it? You just referred to the to the Council uh, of Jerusalem, right? They're at odds with each other. Uh, this is how the church works. You maintain the teaching of the gospel, and this is what Luther's doing. Is he supposed to just give up? Like, okay, this is causing a problem, so I'm going to shut up. Well, I mean, it was Jesus Himself who sat down and took the time to, uh, you know, weave together a a whip and to go into the temple and start swinging it around like Indiana Jones. Was that that very saintly? I mean, wasn't he just just supposed to accept these these, uh, charlatans and these, uh, you know, money changers and all of this commerce in in a place that's supposed to be a... A house of prayer? Right, and the sevenfold woes against the Sadducees, right? Uh, whitewashed sepulchre, sepulchers. Is that very saintly talk? Uh, I mean, that, that is harsh language. What, what, we're, what we're hearing here is a very selective uh, plucking, if you will, of various acts of Jesus and various sayings of Jesus, number one. But we see this, don't we, uh, precisely with LGBTQ stuff. 
uh, my God, right? The, the, Jesus, he welcomes all people, right? Let the little children come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, yeah, he does. But he also condemns sin and, and, and sinners even uh, through the law to drive them to the gospel. It, it, it just, it's, it's like taking uh, something that doesn't apply and making it apply. I, I, guess, I guess what we're seeing here is a sort of pattern, is it not? You appeal to Galatians 3. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And say, okay, it's fine to have women ordained, right? The passage doesn't address the issue, but they're trying to make it address the issue. That's what this guy's doing, isn't it? This is important as we look at reformers and heretics in the history of the church. The heretics always go on a publicity campaign and a smear campaign against the church. The great saints are often persecuted by their own Catholic church, by their own people, their own bishops, even their own popes. But their attitude is like that of Christ. And we see in Christ, the Son of God, who becomes man, is born in obscurity and humility and allows himself to be crucified by his own people. And that is the means of salvation. And God continues to use that in the lives of the saints to bring about greater good. It's a great mystery. You know, I pray and hope that that would never happen to me or any of you listening. But, you know, it might be a certain case in which if you're trying to do something amazing, like St. Teresa of Avila, right, she was reforming the Carmelite order, and she was suspected as being a heretic, right? She ran into the authorities and had a hard time. Same with John of the Cross, right? So this happens in church history, and we see in Luther the attitude that we do not want to take. And it's that attitude that was spread by the Protestant Reformation, and it literally shattered Europe. And if you look at the time clock from 1517 to today, you begin to see the erosion of Western and Christian civilization, right? And my worry is over time, we will see Islam begin to creep in and take that power to subjugate the Christians to the Mohammedan faith. Very scary. We need to be very prayerful, right? We need to be very close to Our Lady, but we need to somehow heal this great schism. Coming up in 2017 will be the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther's protest, the great protest. And wouldn't it be great by an act of miracle, by an act of grace, that somehow the Protestant Reformation would unwind and we could get back to building up one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Ah, that would be fantastic. Do you agree with that, Pastor Bross? I completely agree with that. If they would agree uh, in doctrine uh, with the Lutherans, that would be a total possibility. In fact, we would welcome it, and we would, uh, even as our confessions say, as late as 1536, submit to the authority of the Pope, gladly submit to the authority of the Pope, uh, if he hadn't anathematized Lutheran teaching. But that has to be the basis, right? Romans 16, 17. Mark those who uh, cause divisions among you and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. This is the scriptural mandate that we have. St. Paul says, uh, again, in Romans, uh, excuse me, Galatians 
1, verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema or accursed. The truth of Christianity can't, for the sake of peace, make peace and unify with what stands against the truth. Now, there's also problems with Martin Luther's theology. He said that salvation is in primarily extrinsic, that is, outside of you, outside of your soul, reality. So God declares you as righteous or just. He doesn't actually transform or make you just. Primarily, it is an imputed justification, right? He would call it alien righteousness. It's righteousness that comes from, not from you, but from another and it's imputed or deposited in your ledger, in your account as being righteous. And this is why Luther could say things like, if you're going to sin, sin boldly, because the grace of God covers you. The righteousness of Christ covers you. Okay, I thought he did a really good job of summarizing justification. I mean, he used all the appropriate verbiage. I mean, that that is the doctrine that... Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. Because it's in the scriptures. Uh, And talk about imputed righteousness. Uh, This is not something that Luther invented. Uh, He reads it right off the pages of scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, this is what he wants it to be, right? This guy that's talking. He has... Something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now look at Paul repeats it. This is cited from Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is imputation. Uh, faith in the promise of God and imputation of righteousness. And so the scriptures are very clear about this. Rome had departed from this teaching. Luther was calling them to faithfulness to the scriptures. Let's talk about the Pekka Fortiter uh, thing, too. This is a really important one. I mean, he's got this all wrong. This is an abuse of what Luther said. Uh, the reason that Luther said Pekka Fortiter, sin boldly, was in a, a letter uh, in correspondence with Philip Melanchthon, who was caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, he had to make a decision, and he was, it was sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And Luther said, sin boldly, right? You're going to... No matter what, this isn't going to go. Neither of these choices is great. Choose one and just do it. Luther is not saying, "Oh, live a life of sin," right? Not at not at all. And you, I mean, you got to read his sermons. He's not saying this anywhere. So again, we're using some superfluous thing that he wrote, and somehow or another putting it on to justification and that because you're justified, you can then go out and uh, do whatever you want. Right. I remember when uh, another Lutheran, he's a Lutheran pastor now, but he wasn't at the time, he was struggling with this uh, very thing, and uh, he went to his professor, Lutheran professor, and said, what you're saying is, because I'm justified, I can go out and do whatever I want. I can go and sin however I want. And the professor wisely says, what do you want to do? <laughs> right? Like, as right. a baptized right. child of God, I mean... Do you want to sin? Do you... Yeah. What is it that you want to do so badly? Right. Yeah. That's a straw man. This is a straw man argument against Lutheranism. Um, Luther 
actually says, right, that you are saved by God's imputation. There's no question about that. But he does not dismiss the sanctified life at all. In fact, that is a an outgrowth uh, of the... As a uh, result of the imputation, this is what happens. Right. He talks about this, a good tree producing good fruit. If you've been justified by God, automatically the fruit that you throw is going to be apples, right? But if you are not a tree that's been justified by God, guess what? It's going to be sour grapes or um, crab apples, right, which are disgusting. That's that's his point. Or black walnuts. Black walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's one teaching of Luther which is extremely offensive, and I'm not even going to say it in this podcast because it is so offensive. In my book, The Catholic Perspective on Paul, I detail Luther's theology, and I include this quote that Luther gives about salvation uh, it's very disgusting. It's a rated R, so I'm not going to repeat it. In fact, I didn't even want to put it in the text of the book, so I removed it to an end note. So you have to actually dig to find what Luther says in this regard. Um, yeah, I won't say any more about it. But his, his, the way he understands salvation is extremely crude and vulgar and obscene, and it does not have the character of beauty and sanctity that we find in the writings of the true Catholic saints. I'm thinking here, for example, Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, the Little Flower, St. Therese de Lisieux, St. Teresa of Avila, we've already mentioned, John of the Cross, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. These saints, when you read their writings, you are caught up in grace. You can feel the Holy Spirit lifting you up. And we don't see that in Luther, at least, and I've never felt that. Even when I was a Protestant and I was reading Luther, I was always a little bit embarrassed that this was our, this was our main head cheerleader, Martin Luther. So if you do read Luther, you'll see that. I don't encourage you to read Luther. Um, if you're interested in the nitty-gritty on Luther, you can uh, go on and, and, into my book and see that. You may be able to even access, access that part on Amazon.com or Google Books. It's called The Catholic Perspective on Paul by Taylor Marshall, and you can find that if you want to. So that's Luther. We're in October. We're moving towards the October 31st. Uh, as you talk with your friends, maybe bring up Luther, you know, in 500-year anniversary coming up of Protestantism. How can we turn it back around? Yeah, I've listened to that little portion there several times, Pastor Bruss. I, I have no idea what he's referencing. I have... Uh, Nobody's suggesting that Luther couldn't be coarse, but he just kind of throws that out there and leaves it up in the air. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on that? I, I don't. I don't know exactly what he's. I can't think of exactly what he's referring to. Uh, Luther was coarse. We talked about that. It was the period of Corbianismus. It was all poopy talk, and and actually this was like academic discourse. Um, this is how people talk to each other, uh, and. Uh, you know, Luther's Catholic opponents use the same kind of language. Emser. I mean, read read some of that. The, the exchange between Emser and Luther. They wrote poopy poems uh, against each other. It started with Emser. So Erasmus, would he have spoken in this way? Erasmus uh, was... Actually, Erasmus was slightly more refined. 
And so, but Erasmus uh, wasn't affected in the same way by the by the Corbianismos as Luther was. Remember, Erasmus was Dutch, and uh, there was a different sort of uh, courtly manner, if you will, um, along the western coast of Europe and uh, even in England itself. Just a, a different kind of uh, everyday refinement. So we're not defending Luther here, but... When we say that we're Lutherans, what is it that we're actually saying? We are saying that with Luther, we stand on the teaching of Scripture. That we agree with him. That we agree with him, that uh, a man is justified by faith alone, uh, through grace alone, and that all doctrine must be derived from the uh, testimony of the prophets and the apostles. Whether or not we use poopy language or not. Right. The manner has changed over the years. I think people would probably, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, just, just, all we got to do is, uh, this is a great, for instance, I don't want to babble on, but Laura Ingalls Wilder, I remember reading this in Little House on the Prairie or something like that. She said the word shoot, and Pa slapped her in the face, and she cried for days as a result of it. Wow. Well, what child today gets slapped in the face for saying shoot? Of course, it's a euphemism for S-H-I-T. A child should get slapped in the face for saying S-H-I-T. Manners have changed. And let's not superimpose 21st century standards upon a medieval argument. So speaking of Luther, what are we going to do in the next handful of episodes of the Pluck Chicken podcast? Well, as you've pointed out many times, Pastor Kearns, uh, a lot of the big questions uh, that still rattle around in the church uh, have been thought about by very wise people in the past. We don't need to reinvent the wheel all the time. The Evangelical Lutheran Church has a, a wonderful set of documents called the, the Lutheran Confessions. One of those documents uh, is known as the Formula of Concord. It was written in 1577 by a handful of Lutheran theologians to settle a number of disputes that had arisen uh, within the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Post-Luther. 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 And... Um, it covers all manner of topics, original sin, uh, the person of Christ, the free will. Is there a free will? Uh, how is one justified? Is it Christ dwelling in you, or is it what Christ has done from the outside? What do we think about other sects, like the uh, Schwenkfelders, as an example? That's a mouthful, isn't it? There's a Schwenkfeld Society, by the way, in Pennsylvania. They settled in Pennsylvania. I think there are like 15,000 Schwenkfeldians wow. left. <laughs> so we'll take a look at that, um, and I think it'll uh, be of great interest to people. These are topics that people still think about. Do I have a free will? What has original sin done to me? How is it possible that Christ, who is in heaven, can be in the sacrament of the altar? What does it mean that he is God and man at the same time? All of these questions are taken up by this, and it's wonderful. And when we go through this, if any of our listeners agree with what is in the epitome, in the formula, they're Lutheran. Get thee to a Lutheran church, exactly. And let's put a plug in this. Uh, so sort of prepping for this. If you don't have a Book of Concord quite yet, you can go to uh, cph.org uh, and order yourself a Book of Concord. The editor is Paul McCain, um, and you can pick up a copy. I think they're in the $35 range. Uh, it's a fantastic document to have on your shelf as a handy compendium of Christian teaching. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. 
To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or St. John LCMS Topeka.org.